Section 29 of Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young by Jacob Abbott. 29. Religious Training. Part 2. Power of Sympathy. 5. In respect to religious influence over the minds of children, as in all other departments of early training, the tendency to sympathetic action between the heart of the child and the parent is the great source of the parental influence and power. The principle, make a young person love you and then simply be in his presence what you wish him to be, is the secret of success. The tendency of young children to become what they see those around them whom they love are seems to be altogether the most universally acting and the most powerful of the influences on which the formation of the character depends, and yet it is remarkable that we have no really appropriate name for it. We call it sometimes sympathy, but the word sympathy is associated more frequently in our minds with the idea of compassionate participation in the sufferings of those we love. Sometimes we term it a spirit of imitation, but that phrase implies rather a conscious effort to act like those whom we love than that involuntary tendency to become like them, which is the real character of the principle in question. The principle is in some respects like what is called induction in physical science which denotes the tendency of a body which is in any particular magnetic or electric condition to produce the same condition and the same direction of polarity in any similar body placed near it there is a sort of moral induction which is not exactly sympathy in the ordinary sense of that word nor a desire of imitation nor the power of example but an immediate spontaneous and even unconscious tendency to become what those around us are. This tendency is very strong in the young, while the opening faculties are in the course of formation and development, and it is immensely strengthened by the influence of love. Whatever, therefore, a mother wishes her child to be, whether a sincere, honest Christian, submissive to God's will, and conscientious in the discharge of every duty, or proud, vain, deceitful, hypocritical, and pharisaical, she has only to be either the one or the other herself, and without any special teaching, her child will be pretty sure to be a good copy of the model. Theological Instruction 6. If the principle above stated is correct, it helps to explain why so little good effect is ordinarily produced by what may be called instruction in theological truth on the minds of the young. Any system of theological truth consists of grand generalizations, which, like all other generalizations, are very interesting and often very profitable to mature minds, especially to minds of a certain class, but they are not appreciable by children and can only in general be received by them as words to be fixed in the memory by rote. 
particulars first, generalizations afterwards, is or ought to be the order of progress in all acquisition of knowledge. This certainly has been the course pursued by the divine spirit in the moral training of the human race. There is very little systematic theology in the Old Testament, and it requires a considerable degree of ingenuity to make out as much as the theologians desire to find even in the teachings of Jesus Christ. It is very well to exercise this ingenuity, and the systematic results which are to be obtained by it may be very interesting and very beneficial to those whose minds are mature enough to enter into and appreciate them, but they are not adapted to the spiritual wants of children and can only be received by them, if they are received at all, in a dry, formal, mechanical manner. Read, therefore, the stories in the Old Testament, or the parables and discourses of Jesus in the New, without attempting to draw many inferences from them in the way of theoretical belief, but simply to bring out to the mind and heart of the child the moral point intended in each particular case and the heart of the child will be touched, and he will receive an element of instruction which he can arrange and group with others in theological generalization by and by, when his faculties have advanced to the generalizing stage. No repulsive personal applications. 7. In reading the scriptures, and indeed in all forms of giving religious counsel or instruction, we must generally beware of presenting the thoughts that we communicate in the form of reproachful personal application. There may be exceptions to this rule, but it is undoubtedly, in general, a sound one. For the work which we have to do is not to attempt to drive the heart from the wrong to the right by any repellent action which the wrong may be made to exert, but to allure it by an attractive action with which the right may be invested. We must, therefore, present the incidents and instructions of the word in their alluring aspect, assuming in a great measure that our little pupil will feel pleasure with us in the manifestations of the right and will sympathize with us in disapproval of the wrong. To secure them to our side in the views which we take, we must show a disposition to take them to it by an affectionate sympathy. Our Savior set us an excellent example of relying on the superior efficiency of the bond of sympathy and love in its power over the hearts of children as compared with that of formal theological instruction in the few glimpses which we have of his mode of dealing with them. When they brought little children to him, he did not begin to expound to them the principles of the government of God or the theoretical aspects of the way of salvation, but took them up in his arms and blessed them and called the attention of the bystanders at the same time to qualities and characteristics which they possessed that he seemed to regard with special affection and which others must imitate to be fit for the kingdom of God. Of course, the children went away pleased and happy from such an interview, 
and would be made ready by it to receive gladly to their hearts any truths or sentiments which they might subsequently hear attributed to one who was so kind a friend to them if however instead of this he had told them no matter in what kind and gentle tones that they had very wicked hearts which must be changed before either god or any good man could truly love them and that this change could only be produced by a power which they could only understand to be one external to themselves and that they must earnestly pray for it every day how different would have been the effect they would have listened in mute distress would have been glad to make their escape when the conversation was ended and would shrink from ever seeing or hearing again one who placed himself in an attitude so uncongenial to them and yet all that might be true they might have had yet only such appetites and propensities developed within them as would if they continued to hold paramount control over them all their lives make them selfish unfeeling and wicked men and that they were in a special though mysterious manner dependent on the divine power for bringing into action within them other and nobler principles and so if a physician were called in to see a sick child he might see that it was in desperate danger and that unless something could be done and that speedily to arrest the disease his little patient would be dead in a few hours and yet to say that to the poor child and overwhelm it with terror and distress would not be a very suitable course of procedure for averting the apprehended result judge not that ye be not judged eight and this leads us to reflect in the eighth place that we ought to be very careful in our conversations with children and especially in addresses made to them in the sunday school or on any other occasion not to say anything to imply that we consider them yet unconverted sinners no one can possibly know at how early an age that great change which consists in the first faint enkindling of the divine life in the soul may begin to take place nor with what faults and failings and yieldings to the influence of the mere animal appetites and passions of childhood it may for a time coexist we should never therefore say anything to children to imply that in the great question of their relations to god and the saviour we take it for granted that they are on the wrong side we cannot possibly know on which side they really are and we only dishearten and discourage them and alienate their hearts from us and tend to alienate them from all good by seeming to take it for granted that while we are on the right side they are still upon the wrong we should in a word say we and not you in addressing children on religious subjects so as to imply that the truths and sentiments which we express are equally important and equally applicable to us as to them and thus avoid creating that feeling of being judged and condemned beforehand and without evidence which is so apt to produce a broad though often invisible gulf of separation in heart 
between children on the one hand and ministers and members of the church on the other. Promised rewards and threatened punishments. 9. It is necessary to be extremely moderate and cautious in employing the influence of promised rewards or threatened punishments as a means of promoting early piety. In a religious point of view, as in every other, goodness that is bought is only a pretense of goodness. That is, in reality, it is no goodness at all. And as it is true that love casteth out fear, so it is also true that fear casteth out love. Suppose, though it is almost too vile a supposition to be made even for illustration's sake, that the whole Christian world could be suddenly led to believe that there was to be no happiness or suffering at all for them beyond the grave, and that the inducement to be grateful to God for his goodness and submissive to his will, and to be warmly interested in the welfare and happiness of man, were henceforth to rest on the intrinsic excellence of those principles, and to their constituting essentially the highest and noblest development of the moral and spiritual nature of man, how many of the professed disciples of Jesus would abandon their present devotion to the cause of love to God and love to man? Not one, except the hypocrites and pretenders. The truth is that as piety that is genuine and sincere must rest on very different foundations from hope of future reward or fear of future punishment, so this hope and this fear are very unsuitable instrumentalities to be relied on for awakening it. The kind of gratitude to God which we wish to cherish in the mind of a child is not such as would be awakened towards an earthly benefactor by saying, in the case of a present made by an uncle, for instance, your uncle has made you a beautiful present. Go and thank him very cordially, and perhaps you will get another. It is rather of a kind which might be induced by saying, Your uncle, who has been so kind to you in past years, is poor and sick, and can never do anything more for you now. Would you like to go and sit in his sick room to show your love for him and to be ready to help him if he wants anything? True piety, in a word, which consists in entering into and steadily maintaining the right moral and spiritual relations with God and man, marks the highest condition which the possibilities of human nature allow, and must rest in the soul which attains to it on a very different foundation from anything like hope or fear. That there is a function which it is the province of these motives to fulfill, is abundantly proved by the use that is sometimes made of them in the scriptures. But the more we reflect on the subject, the more we shall be convinced, I think, that all such considerations ought to be kept very much in the background in our dealings with children. If a child is sick, and is even likely to die, it is a very serious question whether any warning given to him of his danger will not operate as a hindrance rather than a help in awakening those feelings which will constitute the best state of preparation for the change. 
for a sense of gratitude to God for his goodness, and to the Savior for the sacrifice which he made for his sake, penitence for his sins and trust in the forgiving mercy of his Maker, are the feelings to be awakened in his bosom, and these, so far as they exist, will lead him to lie quietly, calmly, and submissively in God's hands, without anxiety in respect to what is before him. It is a serious question whether an entire uncertainty as to the time when his death is to come is not more favorable to the awakening of these feelings than the state of alarm and distress, which would be excited by the thought that it was near. THE REASONABLENESS OF GENTLE MEASURES IN RELIGIOUS TRAINING The mother may sometimes derive from certain religious considerations the idea that she is bound to look upon the moral delinquencies and dangers which she observes in her children under an aspect more stern and severe than seems to be here recommended. But a little reflection must convince us that the way to true repentance of and turning from sin is not necessarily through the suffering of terror and distress. The gospel is not an instrumentality for producing terror and distress, even as means to an end. It is an instrumentality for saving us from these ills, and the divine spirit, in the hidden and mysterious influence which it exercises in forming or transforming the human soul into the image of God, must be as ready, it would seem, to sanction and bless efforts made by a mother to allure her child away from its sins by loving and gentle invitations and encouragements, as any attempts to drive her from them by the agency of terror or pain. It would seem that no one who remembers the way in which Jesus Christ dealt with the children that were brought to him could possibly have any doubt of this. End of section 29. Recording by Bill Mosley Bernardo, Texas, USA.